Hey, it's glad to be back with you guys. I was gone last weekend uh, with my bride for her birthday. Yeah. And uh, we went on a little ride through the Tetons with our bikes. That was a lot of fun. I got to tell you a funny story that has literally nothing to do with anything I'm going to say today, but you just have to know it. And it's, it is a flex, okay, is what it is. Um, we are now in our get, getting close to our mid-30s. That wasn't the flex. It's coming. And we passed a couple. I was pulling a bike trailer with Jude in it. Who doesn't weigh much, by the way? He's very little, so, you know, not too many props. But um, we passed a couple who were in their probably mid-20s. And uh, we are on our non-powered bikes. They're leg-powered bikes, real bikes. You with me? And uh, we're kind of coming up this hill, and they're, like, barely moving, and we just right by them. Yes. But here's why I'm going to flex, because they said this. She turns around, she's in front, the, the lady, and who, I'm assuming they're dating, I don't know their relation status, but she goes, um, see, that's why we're supposed to get e-bikes like those people have. <laughs> Boom! Uh-uh! Humble brag, nothing to do with what we're doing today. All right, good. All right. <laughs> you guys with me? Let's go. Okay, here we go. Romans. Um, how important is it for you for someone to tell you the truth. I mean, like, 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 like for real, like there's like a sliding scale. People are like, man, you can lie to me all you want, whatever, I don't really care. I watch the news. <laughs> to other people who are like, I don't watch the news because I'm sick of being lied to. Where are you at on that scale? Sick of the news, right? Sick of it. How important is it? Here's, I want you to wrestle with this, okay, a little bit. How valuable is the truth to you? Talking the truth. Think about this, okay? Um, because you're Christians, I would assume it's quasi-important to you. <laughs> All right? Um, but I want you to imagine a scenario with me that will kind of test the waters of how important you think this might be. Imagine you woke up one morning with an inexplicable tightness around your chest. Uh, imagine feeling like there was a ton of bricks sitting on your chest, like you couldn't breathe, your lungs were collapsing, and you're an unbearable amount of pain. What do you do next? Call for help, right? Who are you calling? Your friend Barb to Google it for you? What are you doing? You're, okay, 911, right? All right, so you get an ambulance coming. They rush you to the hospital. What do they do then? Whole lot of tests. Thank you. So um, you show up there. They run these tests. They run what, like an EKG. They're going to do like an echo. They're going to do an ultrasound. They're going to maybe do a stress test, depending on how it's doing, right? All this kind of stuff. You with me? How many of you guys have, like, literally lived this experience? You're, like, you're describing last year for me, okay? All right. Um, then imagine, like, the pain stops, kind of subsides, you're feeling better. Uh, they're like, you know, we're going to examine these tests. We drew your blood. We're going to see what's going on. We're going to send you home. We'll give you a call in a couple of days, let you know what's going on. Anybody been, that, been there before? All right. In those couple of days that go by, um, while you're no longer in pain, you're a little bit stressed, anxious, scared, you know, different words, right? Waiting for them to call you back, right? Why, why are you waiting for them to call you back? You need them to tell you what's wrong with your body, yes? You want to know? Okay. So imagine a couple days go by, doctor finally calls you, all right? And he says these words to you. After reviewing all your tests, looking through every scan, the results of your EKG, after consulting your blood work, we have a definitive diagnosis and prognosis for you. Are you on the edge of your seat yet? 
You with me? But now I want you to imagine something. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of that doctor who <clears throat> is suddenly moved with compassion for you, right? Um, imagine he doesn't want to scare you or make you more anxious than you already are. He doesn't want to break your heart. He doesn't want to sadden you with the news that he has to share with you, right? See, what he's about to tell you is that your heart is so diseased, you're only months away from, from perishing. Your heart's not going to make it anymore. You've run out of time on that heart. The symptoms you've been having are heart attacks uh, that will ultimately lead to your death. He knows this truth. He knows you only have a couple months to live. And so just imagine he's so concerned with how you would take the news that he just can't bring himself to tell you. So, out of the kindness of his heart, he says these words to you. I can guarantee you that in a couple of months, you won't be in any pain any longer. <laughs> no diagnosis, no prognosis, just what we call false assurance. Yeah? How important is truth to you in that moment? Right? Do you want it to make you feel good or do you want the truth? What do you want? Right? Um, the doctor is not being kind, he's being cruel. Yes? Church, that's not kindness, that's called malpractice. Yeah? Church, what Paul has been doing is very different from our little imaginary doctor. Um, Paul is telling us the truth about our sinful and state before God Almighty. Siri wants to say something, everybody. Give her just a minute. No. That was me. That's mine. And it's on do not disturb, but it disturbed. All right? Oh, my gosh. It's great. All right, what's Paul been doing the last few weeks, guys? He's giving the truth, right? What's he doing? He's examining what's actually going on with you and with your heart. He's talking about your sin condition under God, under the wrath of God because of sin in your life, right? The reality we're going to face. He's talking about the terminal illness that is coming against us because of our sin, yes? He's not pulling back punches. He's leaning into this. He's getting into the nitty-gritty, right? For the past five weeks, we've been talking about sin, and we're going to do this for two more. You guys with me? Why are we taking this much time? We'll get there in a minute, all right? I want to recap with you uh, so you can go down memory lane of the sin study we've been doing right now, okay? Um, we started this uh, all through 1 through chapter 3. Chapter 1 through chapter 3, you can talk about sin. Um, start in chapter 1, verse 18, right? Where they exchange the truth of God for a lie, right? The original sin, what's happening there is exchanging the truth of God for a lie, moves into then sexual practices, Yes? We have false, distorted sexual practices, LGBTQ things, all this kind of stuff starts to form itself in sin that were described because of that. He moves on from that happy little note to go on to 1, 28 through 32, where we're described as being senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless, insolent, arrogant, boastful, murderers, slanders, etc. Super fun. Um, not only that, but Paul calls us out for being people who approve of those who commit sin. That, in fact, he goes, that approving of those who commit the sin, listen, puts you under even more condemnation. 
than those actually doing them. Welcome to America. Paul then shifts away from the specific actions of sin in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, verse 8, Paul addresses the excuses we try to make for our sin. So we look at these various excuses that have been coming out, trying to justify our behavior, our actions, our sin before God. Romans 2, 1 through 3, Paul talks to the moralist, right? The moral person who, is so, who so quickly condemns everybody else for being deplorable, yet holds themselves up with great esteem. Yeah? Those people deserve judgment. Those people out there, they're so wicked, man. I don't know how they can even live, right? The moralist, yet doesn't see any sin in their own life, and yet God says in his word there that you're practicing the same things. Then the self-proclaimed theologian comes on the scene in Romans 2, 4 through 5 by saying, will God actually judge mankind? Isn't that mean? It's not right. Surely God is patient and merciful, right? So he's ready to forgive. He's not going to judge anybody. Church, this person demands the forgiveness of God for God to prove himself as good. But Paul answers this the self-proclaimed theologian, and says that God only forgives those who repent. That true repentance leads to forgiveness. Then we, we have a little scene of the humanitarian. This is great. The humanitarian in 2, 6 through 16, is filled with concern for all people and asks the question, what about the pagans, right? What about the people who don't have God's word? Isn't that not fair for God to condemn them because they don't have his word? How does Paul respond to this? He says, listen, just like he said in earlier chapter 1, God's existence and attributes are clearly written in nature. His moral conduct is woven into your heart so that you are without excuse before holy God. God has warned them already. No one is being treated unjustly. And then finally in Romans 2, 17 to 29, the Jews or religious people think they're fine with God because of their practices, their liturgies, their morals, their worship, the things that they do, their church going, right? We can go on and on with this, their works. All in a feeble attempt to justify their actions before God, to say, I'm going to be saved because of what I do. Paul replies by saying that their good practices cannot save them. It's an issue, isn't it? Only the faithful, those who believe in their hearts, will be saved. This brings us all the way to where we are today in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 8, Paul will be handling two final objections posed to the doctrine of sin that he's so carefully articulating. So the question is uh, to wrestle with this morning for you guys is this, why is Paul spending so much time on sin? It's important. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yes. Why, right? Church, I think here's the answer. In order to get a person to take the medicine, they first have to actually believe they're sick. You with me? That in order to get someone who's seriously ill to take the medicine, you have to understand that you're actually seriously sick. See, so many of us run through our lives thinking that we're not so bad, that we don't really have a problem, that sin is just kind of a past old word for, for things that aren't totally right and this kind of thing and we don't think that we're actually totally corrupted and totally deserving of the wrath of God and so we use these same kind of excuses. Isn't God kind? Isn't he nice? Isn't he sweet? And, and all these kind of things, right? He's not actually going to condemn somebody, right? 
We use the same kind of excuses because we don't actually think that we're sick. We don't actually think that we have a terminal illness called sin that's going to take us all the way to hell. And Paul is spending weeks unpacking this for us again and again and again to let you know, listen, you need to know the truth. The doctor's not calling to puff you up. God's not calling the phone to say, listen, you're fine the way you are. He's saying, listen, you need a savior because you're going to perish. And he's got that savior for you, church. So I want to lean into this for the next two weeks. You guys going to stay strong with me? Let's do this. Let's do this. You got two more weeks of sin in you? We're getting weary. Everybody came in to like our, our prayer huddle this morning. It was kind of like, <laughs> maybe it was the cold. I don't know. Um, but let me tell you, the gospel glory of what Jesus came to do is going to shine very, very bright because of what we've been sitting in for weeks. Um, grab your Bibles. Turn to Romans chapter 3. And would you stand with me as we read the Word of God this morning? If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got Bibles up here. Come grab one. If you don't have a Bible at home, take one with you. It's for you. Use it. We stand out of honor for the living word of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true. Though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would speak to us through your holy living word. And God, as we come in, we would kneel before it. God, we don't want to miss what you have stored up for us. We don't want to miss the salvation that you have for us, God. We don't want to miss the antidote to the problem of our terminal hearts. So, Lord God, would we receive your word, whatever it is that you speak to us. We would be open, we would be eager to hear and to believe, Lord God. Open and eager to obey. God, would your spirit illuminate this text to us. Pray, God, that your voice be the one that carries, not mine. God, that your word be the one that resounds, not anything I have to put together. Free me from misstep. Free me from misspeaking. Free me, God, from anything that would soften what you have to say for your beloved truth to your children, myself included. We ask for you to do this, Lord God. Church, would you just pray uh, for your heart this morning? Just ask God to speak to your heart. 
Just open your hands up to him now even. is a good time. Just say, Lord, I want you to speak to me today. Here I am listening. Church, would you pray for me that God would use me to be useful to you today to edify and to strengthen your faith? Pray that he'd fill me with his spirit of anointing to preach his word. Lord God, we love you. We need you. It's our confession in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen, church. You can be seated. <clears throat> All right. I want you guys to, you know, it's hard for us sometimes when we come to Romans because we're coming in it mostly, I think probably everybody in this room is not Jewish by blood, and uh, is so therefore coming in as a Gentile, 2,000 years removed from when this is written, and we come in and we kind of quickly think, you know, in our shoes, right? I want you to put yourself in the shoes of um, a second temple Jerusalem Jew who's hearing Paul say these words, okay? Can you go there with me? You're like, I don't even know what that is, but I want you to put yourself in their position here for a minute. Um, Paul has been painstakingly saying with incredible redundancy uh, that the Jews are in no better position for salvation than the Gentiles. That's a very bold claim to a Jew. Um, In other words, what Paul has been saying is, listen, Jews, you are just as bad off as the Gentiles you've been judging for 2,000 years. That's significant, church. Um, He's saying you are also under the wrath of God and destined for destruction. Imagine hearing those words, but thinking through the lens of your entire history as a nation. All right? Think about their story here, church. God handpicked Abraham. He, he plucks him out of Hebron, just takes him and says, you're going to be my man. I'm going to make you into a nation. I'm going to bless the world through you. And through your offspring shall the nations be blessed. Like, I'm choosing you. Abraham didn't choose God, everybody. God reached in into darkness. Abraham was a moon-worshiping pagan. All right? God reaches in and takes him out of his homeland, away from his father, from his people, and says, I'm going to call you to be my own. How many, how many of you, God has done that with you? Right? Praise the Lord. Ripped you out of darkness and just says, you're mine. Um, he promised that he would be faithful to them, that they would be his people, that he would be their God. He promised to bring them back to him if ever they were to wander away. God promised to restore them if ever they found themselves in exile because of their sin. God says, you are my people forever. Yes? Then he gives them the law. This is how you're going to stay my people. This is what we're going to do, right, through Moses. And now Paul comes on the scene. He was, by the way, a Jew, a rabbi, and is saying they are no better off than the Gentiles. What? It's no wonder they had some objections. Often when we read Romans, I think we assume that Paul's kind of working out his theology with his pencil. How many of you guys like write papers and you just kind of start and flow until you get to the end of it? Anybody? (laughs) You're not supposed to do that, people. Make an outline and fill it in. Come on now. Listen, but he's not doing that, right? He's not just trying to figure out what do I think about salvation and, oh, I should add this to this kind of thing. What's he doing? Paul has been preaching this gospel message for years at this point. It's not something he's coming up with in a short little scheme. Jesus gave him this gospel message in the wilderness. Paul has been preaching it, and so with preaching it comes feedback, yes? 
Y'all aren't preachers, you don't know that, okay? But you get some feedback on what you say, all right? It's a good thing, it's a good thing. Um, He's heard these objections before, which gives Paul the leg up because now he gets to anticipate where they're going to say, no, no, that's not good, right? And so what he does is he uses a specific type of writing here called diatribe. Diatribe is when the author introduces a secondary voice, um, usually an opponent, an objector, right, who's going to insert something that's not true that he's going to then go ahead and correct. What Paul's doing is he's going, listen, I'm writing to an audience, both Greek and Jew, and I know that the Jews in that audience are going to be going like, what? (laughs) So I'm going to tell them, I'm going to answer those objections in this writing so they understand where I'm coming from here, so they can understand the actual truth of their condition. So that's what Paul opens with in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says this, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision, right? Think about what Paul had just argued in chapter 2, right? Number one, Paul asserted that the Mosaic covenant had failed because Israel had failed to obey the law. That one statement right there is breathtaking to to a Jew people. (laughs) The law of Moses failed. (laughs) Right, but he goes on. Number two, Paul also asserted that the Jewish ethnicity their blood, and the covenant sign of physical circumcision, the covenant sign of Abraham, by the way, had no value to the Jews because what matters was a person being a Jew inwardly, not one being outward and physical. And then he went so far as to say this, that the obedient but uncircumcised Gentiles were actually true Jews. Y'all. This made them scream the question, (laughs) then what advantage has the Jew? What is the point of circumcision? Church, this is a very reasonable question. All right? What are they asking? Church, when Paul says the word advantage, what he's anticipating them asking is simply this, what help is it salvifically to being a Jew? In other words, What the heck was the entire Old Testament for? (laughs) Some kind of sick joke? Some kind of, like, what what is the reason for this? Is it just null and void? Was it all a lie? Is God not faithful? That's the question, church. Look at how Paul responds, though. We, We almost anticipate him going like, yeah, no, there's no advantage. What's he say, though? He says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Um, What's Paul's answer, church? To say, is there an advantage? Yes, okay. I'm not trying to trick you, I promise, all right? There's an advantage, right? Much in every way, right? What's the advantage? Guys, the Greek word translated to begin with is the Greek word proton. Say that with me, proton. Right? That word means first, chiefly, or above all. all right? What Paul is saying is not, here's first in the list. He's saying more important than anything else, the most significant thing that God did to give you an advantage is this right here. What is it? God gave you his word. Just the special revelation of God in his written word is the preeminent gift he gave to the Jews. 
The oracles of God, that that statement, the oracles of God, means the entirety of the Old Testament. This is the law and the prophets. Everything God had given to you in the Tanakh, in Hebrew Bible, is the oracles of God. And it's a preeminent gift that God has blessed the people of Israel with above anybody else on the face of the earth, church. God, in his sovereign freedom, chose one people group to give his written word to, and that people is the Jews. And that's a profound gift of grace. And he says it's an advantage. Now my question for you is, how is the written word of God an advantage? Well, let me word it a different way. How is the written word of God used as an advantage? See what I mean? Only through belief. Only through belief. Church, in order for the Jews to benefit from the advantage they have in the Old Testament, they have to actually take advantage of it. Are you with me? Like, in order to reap the preeminent gift that it is, you actually have to use it. Does that make sense to anybody in the room today? What good is a rifle if it sits on your shelf? Yes? Come on now. You receive things from people. To use that gift, you actually got to use that gift. Yes? God gave them the gift of his word, and the word can only be benefited from by hearing and by believing, church. This is what they failed to do. They failed to hear it because they failed to obey it. And church, they failed to obey it because they failed to believe it. This begs the question then, church, for us. Do you actually believe the word of God? Are you taking advantage of the revelation God has given you in his holy word or are you taking it for granted? See, in our day and age, church, we got Bibles everywhere. Come on, how many of you guys have more than one Bible at your home? How many of you guys more than five? <laughs> how many of you guys have every translation of the Bible on your phone? <laughs> right? How many of you guys have access to the World Wide Web? Yes? Listen, we live in a day and age, my gosh, right now on your phone in America, in, on your phone, you have more access to biblical resources than pastors do in Africa who've studied. At the palm of your hand through you version, you have more biblical resourcing than most of the world. Do you realize that? You know what kind of privilege that is? Let me ask you this. Are you taking advantage of having the word of God or are you taking that advantage for granted? See, so many of us, we just kind of, we have it written on our walls. We got that bumper sticker in our car. You know what I mean? We've got the little fish thing. And it's like, you know, that's what we got going on, right? But are we actually interacting and using and taking advantage of the word of God? Are we believing this? And when I ask you that question, what I'm saying is, in order to believe this, you have to know this. Do you know this? If you don't know this, you can't believe this. See, the Jews failed to obey because they failed to believe. My question is this, how, how great is your obedience? Your obedience is going to follow your believing. Are you taking advantage of it or are you taking it for granted? Church, in order for there to be an advantage in possessing the word of God, we must first believe it and then obey it. We need to know it. When Paul says that to them, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God, they're catching his line of thinking. And they recognize that there's a failure in themselves to keep God's word. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. That's, that's a trust. That's a sacred trust. You've, to you, have been given this. 
and they failed to keep it because this is what they go on to say, verse 3. What if, but, I love this question. What if some were unfaithful? It's like a nod towards our total disobedience, right? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? That's the question. Church, listen to me. This question could not be more relevant to where we find ourselves at this point in history with Israel and Hamas. What if some were unfaithful? Church, that word some in the Greek actually is the word that could be better translated most. It has a nuance to it that describes most of the people. What they're saying is, what if God, what if by chance most of the people of Israel were unfaithful to your word? What they're asking is this. If God made a promise to Israel to save them, then how will God keep his promise when the majority of the Jews were and are currently unfaithful? In other words, can Israel's disobedience lead to God turning his back on the promise he has made to them? That's the question. Can our unfaithfulness in turn make God unfaithful to his promise? That's the question, church. And let me tell you, that's the question we have to answer today. First, I want to answer what it means that the Jews were unfaithful. Um, There are two main things, I think, in view here. Number one, the Jews failed to believe in Christ, the Messiah. Yes? Uh, Read the Gospels. This is the account. Messiah has come. The one God promised, he has come. He offered the kingdom to the Jews. He says, here I am now to sit on David's throne. Yes? And what happened? Rejection. We do not believe in him as Messiah. We rejected him. That's failure number one. Number two, the Jews failed to obey the law. Welcome to the entirety of the Old Testament. (laughs) Yes? Again and again and again. Israel's unfaithfulness is twofold, church. It's disbelief and it's disobedience. Faithlessness is disbelief and it's disobedience. Where are they today? Dis... 1.7% of the nation of Israel is Christian. 1.7. 1.7. Less than 2%. Church, that's an unreached nation. 1.7%. That means the rest of them are in disbelief and disobedience. Church, the Jews failed to believe in Jesus and they failed to obey the law of God. And so this is the question. Does this mean that their unfaithfulness will nullify the faithfulness of God? Answer, by no means. I shouted at you because there's an exclamation point there. (laughs) Thank you. You get points today. Will the unfaithfulness of the Jews nullify the faithfulness of God? The answer is, by no means. No. No. Church, then here's the question we have to ask. Then how is God just not to save them if they don't believe in Jesus? We're getting deep today, y'all. 
doesn't that mean that he's breaking the covenant he made with them to save them? No. <laughs> Breathe. <laughs> Here's why. I love the way Thomas Schreiner put this, so I'm just going to articulate what he says here. Uh, God's faithfulness here means that he will fulfill his covenant promises. He will fulfill his covenant promises, particularly the pledge that the Jews would experience eschatological salvation. You're like, that's a loaded sentence. Listen, here's what it's saying. God is absolutely going to save the Jews. Amen? God is absolutely going to do that. Church, throughout the Old Testament, God made everlasting and unconditional, that's the key word, unconditional promises to Israel for their salvation. God promises against himself that that is what he's going to do, that he is going to save, church. That is so significant. God gave conditional promises for the land. You disobey me, you lose the land. You obey me, you'll have the land. Conditional, but unconditional. I will be your God, you will be my people. I will put in you a new heart and you will believe me and you will follow me. Unconditional promise of God that he would save. Church, what we mean by eschatological salvation is the salvation God will mediate on behalf of the Jewish people in the end. This isn't happening right now. If they're in disbelief and disobedience, they are not being saved right now. But God says he's going to save. In fact, Romans eleven twenty six, Paul says this, all Israel, what's it say? Will be saved. It's future. God has a promise that he is going to continue out. It's a future promise that God will fulfill. Church, Schreiner goes on to say this. Paul implies that the fulfillment of the saving promises to Israel will be a miraculous and gracious work of God. And I would add, just like it is for us. They, are currently, they currently disbelieve and disobey, but in faithfulness to his covenant, in faithfulness to God's covenant, God will turn them from unbelief to belief and bring to fruition the salvation promised in the Old Testament. Church, if God is faithful and he is, he will save. Amen. Look at Paul's full answer to their question about whether or not God would break his promise. Remember, what I'm asking is, is God just to send them to hell right now if they disbelieve and disobey? Does that make him unfaithful? The question, the answer is, and here's why. By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. How many? What if some disobeyed? How many? Everyone. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Church, God will remain true to his promise even though every person is a liar. Though every person lies, God will remain true. This principle you need to keep in mind. God's truthfulness is not dependent on the truthfulness of humanity. God's truthfulness is not dependent on the truthfulness of of humanity, and thank God for that. Or we'd all be damned. You with me? Church, what Paul is doing here is he's quoting Psalm 51, 4, um, which is a very pointed psalm. Psalm 51 is David's confession against his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, what happened with the sin with Bathsheba? Anybody remember? 
David doesn't go to war. He stays back where he's supposed to be. That wasn't right. That was bad leadership, poor judgment, all kinds of things. He looks, finds a pretty lady, goes and gets her, sleeps with her. She's married to his best friend, the captain of his army, right? Um, she becomes pregnant, so now we got to do a cover-up scheme. What do we do? Try to make him think it's his baby. He won't do that because he's loyal. And so now what? we got to kill him. Adultery, cover-up, murder, and by the way, the execution of the commander of an army. That, that's got to carry some kind of weight to it. Little sin? Just a little bit. Little oops. Right? Psalm 51, David is pleading with God for forgiveness. Uh, did David confess his sin or was he caught? He was caught by Nathan the prophet. Pleading with God for forgiveness in this psalm, knowing full well that he deserved the right wrath of God, which, by the way, for this sin, these many sins, was to be cut off from among the people of Israel because this was what's known as a high-handed sin. Um, Throughout the law, God gave atonement offerings for sin committed unintentionally, and intentional sin is called a high-handed sin. This is one that puts really the thumb in the face of the Lord and says, I know this is wrong, I'm going to do it anyway. That's called high-handed sin. And for high-handed sin, according to the law, there was no atonement. There was only consequence. The consequence was you are cut off from the people of God. You are cut off from God himself. Therefore, you are not saved. You are outcast from the kingdom of heaven. This is the king of of Israel, the king of Judah, who committed high-handed sin and therefore should be cut off. And he's pleading with God for mercy. But what is fascinating is what he says here in the fullness of the verse that Paul quoted. Psalm 51, verse 4. David says this, Against you, what to say there? You, interesting. Didn't he sin against Bathsheba and her husband? Oh, and by the way, the entire nation. Hmm. Against you, You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Fact, yes? Look what it goes on. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Church, David sinned against God, therefore God is just to judge his sin. Paul is using this verse to make one staggering claim, and that is this church. God may not only be faithful to his covenant to save, he must also be faithful in his covenant to condemn. What David is praying is saying, God, listen, I deserve your wrath. I deserve your judgment. I have done evil in your sight. I deserve to be cut off. And if you do that, you are just. You are upholding the justice of your name. In fact, your name is justified and blameless because you choose to wreak condemnation upon me. But he's asking for forgiveness. In other words, church, God is faithful to his promise to condemn as well to save. You cannot have a God who saves without having a God who also condemns. 
Church, there is no salvation from where there is no condemnation, and this is because God is just. Paul is unmistakably foreshadowing here in chapter 3 what he will explain in great detail in Romans 9 through 11. When we get to that, he's going to pick this thing up and really go with it. I like to think of it like this. In this section of Scripture, Paul is setting up the volley, if you will, right? So he can spike it in your face in chapter 9 through 11. Just going to hover there for a few chapters, all right, waiting for it. But here's the underlying threat. God is righteous to judge sin, yes? And God must be righteous to also forgive, yes? God made a promise to Israel to save them. Therefore, he must keep that promise, yes? But can he keep that promise without judging because he promised judgment? No. Church, when humans sin, it reveals God's justice. When we sin, when Israel sinned, God is revealed to be just. It magnifies that. When God is revealed to be just, this brings him glory, and it brings him glory because it reveals his faithfulness to both judge and to forgive. Isn't that amazing? And all this leads to the final objection Paul anticipates right here in verse 5. Put in a couple ways. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, What shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Then he adds this parenthesis right here. I speak in a human way. Do you know why that parenthesis is out of there? Paul is very nervous about what he's saying by quoting this lie. Paul is nodding to the reality that what's happening here is humanity is accusing God of being unjust And he's going, slow down. If you want to accuse God of being unjust or unfair or unrighteous, you are on thin ice. Paul's using this statement as an argument, right, to come back and counter it and say that's not true. But even speaking those words, even writing those words makes Paul uneasy. That's how trepid uh, he is in the moment with this text. You have to recognize that. Sometimes we're very flip with the Lord. Paul's not being flip right here. Church, what they're asking is this. If my injustice makes God's justice shine, then how can he be angry with my sin? In other words, my sin is like the black velvet, the diamond of God's justice is contrasted against. It makes him look good. Church, our sin reveals God's mercy and his judgment. It reveals his glory. And if that's true, and it is, then here's the question they're getting at. This is what they're insinuating. Then how is it right for God to punish us? If our sin makes him look good, how dare he punish us? I want you to wrestle with this statement. The ends don't justify the means. The ends don't justify the means. Um, We we live in a very subjective culture, yes? (laughs) Right? Um, We think that as long as we get what we desire in the end, how we got there doesn't matter. Yeah? 
I have a goal. I want to reach that goal. I can do some shady stuff to get there. It doesn't really matter if nobody was hurt, right? That's why it's so easy for us to tell a white lie to get what we want, isn't it? Right? So we, we figure if a white lie doesn't hurt anybody and in the end we get what we want, no harm, no foul, no problem, yes? As this is the air we breathe as a culture, people doing shady stuff to get to the top. This is like common practice. Welcome to politics. You don't, you don't get there without doing shady stuff, Yes? But as long as we can get that guy elected, we can say whatever we want about the opponent. We can boldface lie if, if it means we get a better guy in the office. What is that? That's saying the opposite. That's saying the ends do justify the means, isn't it? That's the culture we live in, church. I want you to imagine a scenario with me, if you will. How many of you guys are single in the room? Anybody? A couple of y'all? This is for you. I want you to imagine a drunk driver hits you when you're single, all right? And you land in the hospital for treatment and a nice, attractive nurse comes and nurses you back to health. Months you're there, right? Banged up, broken legs and limbs, the whole bit. And uh, during the course of that treatment, you develop a friendship with this awesome nurse, yes? And feelings start to form and I'll spare you the drama, but we get to the Nicholas Sparks ending, which equals a wedding. And happily ever after, yes? How many of you guys watched that movie before, yeah? Your loneliness is gone. You have a slight limp, but my gosh, it's worth it. <laughs> um, does the fact that the story ended with a wedding justify the drunk driver who put you in the hospital? <laughs> it's like a hesitation. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> right? Is he going free? I mean, why, why not have him exonerated? He gave you the gift of the, the, you're not lonely anymore, right? If you weren't in the hospital, you wouldn't have met the cute nurse. Doesn't matter. Because the ends don't justify the means. That person is doing the punishment for the crime regardless that God made a good outcome for it. Yes? Church, Paul responds like this in their, in their same line of thinking. Verse 6, and he yells it again. By no means! But then how could God judge the world? Right? Guys, if the ends justified the means, then God would be wrong to judge the world for sin. That's the reality. God couldn't, in fact, rightly judge if the ends justified what we did to get there. Church, simply because God often turns evil for good doesn't permit evil to go unpunished. God is good and he is gracious and he's kind. He says in, in, in one of my favorite passages in Genesis 50, he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Praise the Lord. Yes? That God can take something that was intended to harm, something that can destroy, something that can wound and kill and steal, and God in his sovereign purpose can turn it for good. Amen? But just because God does that again and again and again, you've seen it in your own life. God takes a train wreck and turns it into something awesome. And just because God does that doesn't mean it justifies the punishment that's deserved because of the sin that got you there. The ends don't justify the means. If they did, then God is unjust to punish for sin, church. 
And Paul's emphatic. He says, that's absolutely not the case. But the argument presses it one more time. It goes on and says, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why do not evil, why, why not do evil, excuse me, that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just church. There were Jews running around trying to discredit the gospel Paul was preaching by saying he was preaching a gospel that permitted sin. Because when you sin, God's glory is amplified. When you praise him, God's glory is amplified. Do you see who this story is about? And they're going around saying that because that's the case, that then Paul's gospel is light on sin. It's easy on sin. It means that we can go ahead and sin. It's just going to bring God glory, so let's go ahead and sin. They're charging Paul with that kind of lie. Slandering. That we can continue to do evil because it will reveal God as good. Paul dismisses that argument out of hand by saying those who promote such falsehood deserve condemnation. They deserve wrath. There are people arguing today who go around saying that uh, because of grace, we can just continue flippantly in our sin. We're fine. Not so fast. There are people today that, says that, that says that uh, Paul preached a gospel that didn't take sin seriously because he preached grace. Church, the gospel Paul is preaching, the gospel of Jesus Christ, takes sin extremely seriously. Paul is keenly aware of the cost of sin and that the cost of sin is extreme. It means eternal judgment in hell. The terminal heart disease that is sin will take your life. It is the uttermost terminal illness that one can have. Paul is not light on sin. That's why we've been in it for weeks. But the beauty of the gospel is that it has the power to deal with sin. Church, and here's why. Four words. This is why the gospel can deal with sin. Because God is faithful. Church, he is both faithful to save when he has promised salvation and he is faithful to judge when he has promised condemnation. Church, the faithfulness of God is our only hope for salvation. What Paul has been saying again and again, making painstakingly clear, is that no one can measure up to the righteousness of God. All are liars, all disobey, all sin, Jew and Gentile alike. Every single one of us is guilty of sin that would lead us to death, period. That's the reality. That's the tragedy of sin. But here's the powerful truth is that God is faithful. Come on. Church, God has promised to save and God didn't just promise to save. He made a way for it. Church, Paul said earlier that God gave Israel his written word in the form of the Old Testament. That this was a great preeminent privilege. But church, it gets so much better because church, God gave the world the word in the flesh, Jesus Christ, his son. The exact image of invisible God. God came to earth. His revelation through the Old Testament wasn't complete. He spoke it to us through his son. God gave us his son. Come on. 
so that he could make a way. That's the reality of what God was doing because God promised both salvation and judgment. He mediated both through his son, Jesus Christ. It came to one man. God saved the world through one, his son, Jesus Christ. This is how God maintains yet his faithfulness to save and his faithfulness to judge is through Jesus Christ, his son. Church, Jesus Christ took the wrath of God on his body in your place. Not theoretically, literally. He did this so that God could actually save sinners, so that David could be saved when there was no atonement for his sin. Church, Jesus took the cross so that God would remain just. We'll get into that further in Romans. We'll unpack that more. But I want you to think about this as we close. We often say that Christ died for me, and that's true to a degree. It's not complete. Church, Christ died for God. Christ died so that God could remain faithful in justice and mercy because humanity could not. Church, Christ died for God so that God could be just and the justifier for all who believe. Church, it comes down to belief. My question for you today is this, do you believe? Church, through Christ, God the great physician doesn't just give you a diagnosis with a prognosis in the truth. He gives you healing to an incurable disease. God takes an old heart that is dead and he puts a new one in your chest, one that is filled with the spirit of God. God does what could never have been done through Jesus Christ, his son. With faith comes a new heart. God is faithful, yes? When God promises to save, he's gonna save, amen? When God promises to judge, he's gonna... Jesus took your judgment so that God can save you. It's the same for the Jews. It's the same for Israel. It's the same for Muslims. By faith, grace through faith in Christ, amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your abundant faithfulness. Now, Lord, why we deserve condemnation and we deserve wrath. David deserved wrath, Lord. He had no way to even ask for forgiveness, but to throw himself on your mercy and beg you for it. And God, you would have been just to cut him off from the people, your chosen people. But Lord God, you looked ahead. You made a plan from before the creation of the world that you were going to save. Lord, you made a plan with your son, Jesus Christ, that you would send him for sin in the place of sinful man so that we can be made one with you, God. We can be made right. We praise you for that truth. So God, I pray for belief. Pray for trust in this house, Lord, that we trust your faithfulness. We trust 
you to be who you say you are, that you're just, you're right, you're merciful, you're true, and that you will do what you say. So God, we, we give you honor and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.